Manifesto Read, the manifestos analysed by the experts. I think that the first episode should really deal with areas that we are really comfortable talking about. Yeah, so we can kind of set the scene. Yeah, so what area would you pick for you? Uh, so probably home affairs. I'm a politics graduate, you know, so we can talk about justice and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm good there. Brilliant. I can cover justice as well as a criminal defence barrister. And a good area that I think fits in with those two would be general defence. And foreign policy as well. Yeah. Which I can cover too because I... Because you're a politics graduate. Yeah, yes, I get yes, it. Yes, yes, I know. I'm going to keep saying that ad nauseum. <sighs> So, let's get into it then. All right, so my name is Samuel Etienne. I'm a former army officer. And uh, within the army, uh, I spent a number of years working various roles, uh, intelligence, uh, artillery, uh, as well as training as well. So uh, I have that insider sort of uh, view of defense and a fair bit of training on foreign policy and what the UK was and is up to at the moment. So that's who I am. So my name is Ayo Afalabi. Um, I am a management consultant, having worked in financial services industry for the last eight years. Um, I also am a politics graduate, which means that uh, I am rather au fait with um, all matters political, um, hence my involvement in this, in this episode, despite the fact that I am not um, a, a judge or a barrister or a member of the military like my dear friend Sam. I'm Fiona Robertson. I've been a barrister since 2008. Um, I predominantly specialise in criminal law, um, particularly in defending cases involving vulnerable or young witnesses or defendants. Um, I've mainly been practising in London, but I've also spent just over three years working as a criminal attorney in the Cayman Islands. So hi, my name is Zainab Asanramu. I am a Labour member and um, also I used to work slash still kind of work in Parliament, even though it's um, dissolved at the moment, as a parliamentary researcher for a Labour MP. And my work entails dealing with policy casework. So it could be anything from, you know, people mess- emailing us or calling us or sending letters around immigration, housing and what the government's doing and what Labour plan to do to kind of counteract some of the policies. Like I said, housing, education, health and things like that. So I have definitely written lots of policy responses to those um, for constituents. Yes, I've, I've tended lots of kind of APPGs um, on particular issues. Um, For example, the last one I went to was the APPG on TOEIC, which is the test of English for international communication. Um, Lots of people within our constituency did those tests, but then I think the government found out that quite a few people were cheating on those tests. What it means is that people who were going to university um, and had passed those tests basically had their, not citizenship, but visa revoked because they were found, it was found that some people were cheating. So it was kind of like a blanket situation that happened for lots of different people. Um, And it's kind, and the OPPG is set up to kind of counteract that and trying to persuade the government to kind of go back a little bit on some of the policies they passed there. Other ones I can think of, knife crime. I've gone to um, APPG on knife crime and um, had to sit and listen to Cressida Dick and um, the Deputy Mayor Sophie Linden talk about um, some of the things that they have in place to kind of counteract knife crime and kind of listen to 
people say the same thing over and over again, um, not really drill down to what the real issue is, which is, in my opinion, poverty um, and stuff like that. So it's been really interesting um, being in Parliament um, and dealing with all of these issues as they come up. Um, I also sit on the um, Parley Reach Committee, which is Parliament's kind of BAME network, which kind of works to um, hold both houses House of Lords and House of Commons to account on issues that affect BAME people within Parliament. Um, prior to that, I used to work at Amnesty International and um, there I worked in fundraising for a little while, working with trusts and corporations to try and fundraise for Amnesty's like great campaigns because they do have phenomenal campaigns. But also I was really fortunate to sit and work as a research assistant on the latest, most innovative in my opinion, piece of research that's come out from Amnesty in terms of its intersectionality, which was focusing on online abuse against women. And it was the piece of research that really brought out the fact that Diane Abbott was one of the most abused female MPs in, well, MPs in parliament as a black woman and kind of talked about, you know, if the more identities you kind of have, so if you're a black Muslim woman that works in parliament, you're three times more likely to get abuse um, to someone who's your white counterpart. And it was just phenomenal to, to learn from the research lead, Asmina Droda. I'm going to big her up because it's because of her that that research was so interse- intersectional. Um, and currently I am just canvassing really, pounding the pavements for our new prospective parliamentary candidate for my area um, and trying to get her elected. I'm Abimbola Johnson, although everyone calls me OJ. I'm a criminal defence and professional regulatory and inquest lawyer barrister at 25 Bedford Row. I was called to the bar in 2011 and I am the winner of the Diversity Legal Awards Rising Star Award from last year. Um, So obviously I have the similar areas of expertise to Fiona in terms of policing and crime. So Sam, obviously you're going to be dealing predominantly with the areas of defence and foreign affairs. Yes. Should we kick off with you giving us a sort of kind of like headline summary of what each of the major three parties have said about these areas? So uh, if you're ready and if you're happy... We're ready, Sam. Teach us. All right. All right. All right. I'm not a teacher. (laughs) Yeah. But we're going to go into it. So the first key point on defence and foreign policy... And can I just say, this is one of the most inwardly looking manifestos across all the political parties. So which part are we talking about? But we're going to talk about the Conservatives uh, first. And the Conservatives quite simply state that they have to continue to exceed NATO's target of 2% of GDP spend on defence and increase the defence budget by at least 0.5% above inflation throughout Parliament. Jeff on the bus right now is like, who is NATO? What is NATO? What is going on? All right, so NATO stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. There are 29 North American and European member states, and it's an intergovernmental alliance that was set up after World War II, along with the UN and all these other uh, bodies in Brussels. NATO have been involved in uh, the war in Bosnia, in the intervention in Kosovo to prevent genocide, in the war in Afghanistan. They're currently involved in the Iraq training mission and anti-piracy in the Gulf of Aden. So it's 29 member states coming together and all working together and training together to try and bring about a military aim, uh, be it uh, offensive or defensive. The guiding principle of NATO and the heart of the founding treaty is that an attack on one member state counts as an attack on all. Mm. 
mm-hmm. which is pretty crazy when you think about it because yeah. there are 29 member states all with very different foreign policy outlooks. It's, it's madness. Quite simply, the Conservatives aim to continue to exceed NATO's target of 2% spend on GDP. Uh, quite simply, uh, that's a good thing. There aren't many nations in the world that are fulfilling this 2% of GDP spend on defense, which is what NATO want. Uh, the US, Trump especially, likes to pop over and uh, pretty much make the statement that NATO and NATO uh, individual members aren't doing enough on defense. Uh, the US feel as though they're spending far much more on defense than, than we are. Then say the likes of the French. Not not necessarily not 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 necessarily Britain, but other members of NATO. Okay. Um, Brit- Britain Britain has actually been and it's actually funny. I was listening to um, the um, head of NATO on um, Andrew Marshall this morning, and he was actually saying that Britain have actually been one of the better members who have consistently hit and surpassed the two percent spending targets. Um, so Britain isn't the issue here, but. Nations like France are the issue. In Trump's mind, those countries need to be reprimanded because they're not spending enough. Well, not necessarily reprimanded, but then they they need to basically step up. And he's kind of waved around the he's been saber rattling over the last kind of like twelve to eighteen months, saying, "Well, if you're not going to stump up, then we're going to kind of withdraw from NATO. We're going to you know lessen our involvement, which obviously." destabilizes the, the entire system, agreement, the, yeah. the entire agreement and the system as it is. Can I just say that each of the three major political parties have committed to spending at least 2% of GDP on defence, which is the NATO pledge. So which party has committed to spending the most? In terms of the manifestos I read even today, uh, no one said that they aim to spend more than 2%. It's just that they've committed to the pledge to spending 2%. So they're all kind of keeping the status quo, basically. Had I misunderstood? Because I thought that the Tories were saying that they are going to keep it above the NATO target of 2%. So they are committing to spending more. They haven't said how much, but they have said more, haven't they? So I am aware of the fact that um, they are committed to spending an extra 2.2 billion, which obviously maintains a level above the... The, the two the, the two percent presumably the, the whatever percentage it is depends on what the gdp is so yeah it's, it's real money terms as opposed to percentage so i'm looking Ex- at exactly. loads yeah, could be t- exactly. looking at page 53 of their manifesto mm-hmm. so they say we will continue to exceed the nato target of spending two percent of gdp on defense and increase the budget by at least 0.5 percent above inflation every year of the new parliament so they're saying that they will exceed the nato target but then have the other parties specified the same or have they said they've not specified exceeding it Mm. but across all of the manifestos and uh, you'll see this in Boris Johnson's in particular uh, there is a lot of bluster and it's very wordy but not many numbers attached a lot of posturing (laughs) yeah so uh, exceed sounds great we don't know whether that's going to be exceeded by 0.0001% or whether it's a massive chunk of money that would have otherwise been spent on the NHS. So it's sort of quite non-committal, isn't it? Massively. But at the same time, it's a commitment to maintaining the status quo, which we have in place. Rather than dialing it back, for example. I do think there are slight differences in the... um in the manifestos in that, for example, if you look at the Labour manifesto, one of the things that they're committing to is improving the working conditions of their soldiers and the living conditions of their soldiers, which, you know, when you look at that approach compared to the Tory approach, which might be looking to cut down the standing army um, levels from whatever it is now, I think it's around 80,000, isn't it now? 
74,000 to cut that down even further and to focus on, I don't know, cyber warfare and focus on the other other arenas of war. There is there 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 well there are different approaches as to what would be done with with the funding that has been made available for military spend, and that's something to kind of potentially look at. It's it's very interesting actually uh, that you mentioned that because in the Labour manifesto, uh, it specifically speaks about the fact that troop numbers have gone down from a hundred and two thousand to seventy four thousand, whilst we've had a Conservative government in power. Mm. This may not necessarily be a case of the Conservatives implementing cuts. Perhaps people have just had enough and just left. Yeah. Uh, it's taken a very long time to get any sort of real terms pay increase in line with inflation okay. for public sector workers. That's only just come into place uh, very recently, I think, in the past sort of 12 months we're looking at that. You know, from yeah. my perspective, when I hear about public sector workers and their pay, yeah. I rarely actually consider the army is falling into, yeah, into no, that. You know, I always think of like social workers, nurses, doctors, doctors yeah. teachers. that kind of thing. Teachers, All these people exactly. can strike if they want to. Yeah, you don't, you actually, no, yeah, it's, it's totally true. You forget true. and then compare it to other countries where they do go on strike, yeah. where you see the armed forces talking about that kind of thing. We don't hear much about this aspect of it. It's a complete lacuna in terms of my understanding of, of what's going on in that kind of area. And it's really interesting what you said about the fact that these numbers have reduced under the Conservative um, government, especially because when you think about how these parties operate, you would often think, I would align the Conservatives with strong, strong kind of defence spending, yeah. really kind of pandering or, or deferring to what the army says it needs. So I would have thought that, if anything, the numbers would have increased under the Conservative Party. But I think that also speaks to the nature, changing nature of warfare. I mean, warfare is no longer kind of boots on the ground, or isn't as much boots on the ground. We're seeing the increase in drone warfare. We're seeing the increase in the cyber war, you know, with state-backed state backed warfare with the Ch- Chinese government hackers and Russian, you know, yeah, exactly. interference in elections. Because cybercrime is something that features really heavily in each of the manifestos. Yeah. Well, features in each of the manifestos anyway. They all make reference to the fact they want to increase funding in cybercrime. And I wonder how much crossover there'll be between that and defence spending. So Sam, hit us with what Labour says about defence and hit us with what Lib Dems say about defence. Okay, Labour on defence. They want to bring into power the War Powers Act, which we've just touched upon. They also want an audit of Britain's colonial legacy Mm. and what that means for defence. Again, what does this mean? (laughs) Why do these manifestos just have these words that have no figures attached (laughs) to it? It doesn't mean much on its own. So an audit of history, basically. Uh, there's not of, much all there. history ever. Of all history. Just, just, just Britain's colonial, colonial okay. legacy, right. okay. uh, which covers the empire and many, many years. Uh, also, quite interestingly, they want to conduct, in their manifesto, they mention climate diplomacy and internationalism. Mm. These are the buzzwords that you pull from the Labour manifesto. And uh, quite simply, it's all about coming together to solve what they consider the key international security issue of the day, which is climate change. Because uh, without going into detail, you think of Clausewitz, the Prussian uh, general in the 18th century, I think, who says that 
War is. What is what, <laughs> what are you talking about? No, 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 we're, we're getting there. Okay, no, he's War going. is nothing but a jewel on an extensive scale. Yeah. Correct. For resources. Yeah, he's right. All about he's resources, right. right? He's right. And if we're going to talk about the climate, we're going to talk about water. We're going to talk about the need for land. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about That's the right. need to grow arable crops. People are going to go to war for this sort of thing. Right. So, so this is solve it in an international with an international system. Then you're taking away a lot of the need for war. This is what I agree with. I think this is not a forward thinking way to look at it's very forward thinking, and it's very wise. But this is why each major party has committed to maintain the pledge to spend 0.7% of GDP on international aid because international aid covers that, it covers helping many of these developing countries to bring into effect technology which isn't pumping a million. I don't know what, what measurement are we going for. Let's say cubits. I don't know. No, no. Let's not say cubits. <laughs> let's say meters cubed of uh, compressed. Cubits is a bit old-fashioned. Okay, okay. Right, I'm sorry. That's You're talking very about 18th Moses. century. Very, yeah. yeah. Well, I can't say cubits. The, the, the arc was measured in cubits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. All right, but um, long story short, this is why we're all committing to maintaining the pledge to spend money on international aid. Well, you know what? I could do a whole episode on international aid and whether or not that helps anyone, because the fact is that. No matter what people say about international aid, the net movement of resources is from developing countries to us. This is true. Yeah. But to summarise, to get back on point, to get <laughs> okay. back on point, the Lib Dems. Okay, so the Lib Dems commit to spending at least 2% of GDP, same as the other parties. Commit to maintaining spending equal to 0.7% of GDP on international aid, same as the other major parties. But they aim to improve the control of arms exports, including a policy of presumption of denial to countries that warrant the most severe concerns over human rights. So you're looking at the likes of... Saudi Arabia. Who we are currently a massive exporter of arms to. Exactly that. They've been at war with Yemen for absolutely ages, or at least groups from Saudi Arabia have been at war with groups from Yemen, and various war crimes have taken place. And some of these war crimes may have taken place with British-manufactured weaponry. Uh, This is of key concern to the British vote. Uh, A final point on the Lib Dems and their outlook in their manifesto and a nod to Paddy Ashdown, who took them from some measly figure uh, in terms of the number of MPs in Parliament to something like, I don't know, 40, 40, 50. Mm. Back in the day. Uh, Paddy Ashdown, uh, many years ago, when there was um, the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre massacre taking place in China. He worked to ensure that over 50,000 Hong Kong citizens, who at the time were very much part of the Commonwealth and British Empire, could be relocated to the UK. Mm. Now we see major protests in Hong Kong. Yeah, fighting for democracy to be reinstated. Correct. So Joe Swinson is saying, let's bring back having Hong Kong natives have British overseas territory passports so that if they wish, uh, they could travel to the UK or back and forth or elsewhere, but almost granting them some additional rights and ability to, in fact, um, come back to their former host nation. So that's quite interesting and a nod to Paddy. So actually there's some food for thought there because there are aspects in, I think from what you've highlighted, um, in particular, the the quite forward-thinking aspect of the Labour manifesto of tackling climate change as a defence as a defence strategy the Lib Dems are keen on that as the well. Lib Dems are keen on that yeah. as well and that's not something that is addressed in the Conservative manifesto am I right in understanding that 
you go through the manifesto. I'm sure it's mentioned, but there aren't not highlighted many specifics in the same way. Attached yeah. To yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Uh, the Green Party are all over it, as expected. Yep. So also the SNP, actually. And I guess their environmentalism outlook ties in with the fact that they don't want Trident anywhere near Scotland. Okay, if we move now to home affairs, Zainab, can you give us the headlines? Zainab Asanramu. The Lib Dem manifesto is quite good on the area of immigration specifically. So for example, well, we all know they want to stop Brexit, Brexit and save the EU freedom of movement. So that's their kind of flagship. Um, so one of the um, policies within the manifesto that I don't think will get a lot of recognition but I think is absolutely brilliant is the re- reduction of the fee for registering a child as a British citizen from £1,012 um, to the cost of administration which is a fraction of that price and I think it's really important to note that at the moment the government are making a lot of money from you know registering a child as a British citizen and it, you know it they shouldn't be and one of the issues that have come up in parliament time and time again is the fact that lots of families who are going through the um, immigration system are financially destitute right now because of the soaring fees of administration costs um, adding into that the legal fees that they also have to pay add into that some of them still have to pay the immigration surcharge Um, so that is a a great policy from them Um, the other thing that I thought was again you know, much like Labour, getting rid of the hostile environment. Um, there is one policy that I do like, though I don't like the top part of it. Um, so I'm going to start it as at combating human trafficking and the smuggling of people, weapons, drugs and wildlife. I think that's a really important one that will resonate with lots of people in the UK, specifically as that's some of the policy cases that we were getting in Parliament. But the other one, again, which is great, um, making immigration detention an absolute last resort, um, introducing a 28 day limit on detention and um, to close seven of the UK's nine detention centres. I don't think they tell us which ones, but if Yarlswood is one of them, that would be great. Okay, so Zainab, I had a question for you and it's in relation to the Conservative Manifesto and this kind of the Australian points-based system that they have. Um, Now, in terms of obviously my experience as a first-generation immigrant and what I've seen with my family members and friends and so on, is the fact that very often these point systems don't recognise qualifications from their countries of origin, so Nigeria, Ghana and so on. And to me, this reads as something that can lead to the prioritising of white Western points um, and institutions coming being recognised and that repetition of countries which actually have a very strong link to Britain because they're former colonies where the educational system is actually based on the British educational system and yet the institutions are not recognised in the same way. One of the concerns that I had at looking at it is I think you and, and I are both touched upon it and it's the fact that they don't specify how they would determine these points, how they would t- tally them up and there's no commitment by them to ensure that there isn't any aspect of ethnic minority di- discrimination in terms of uh, where those where those immigrants would be coming from. Um, the other thing that I found quite interesting is their emphasis on having fewer lower skilled migrants coming over. And the reason I laugh about that is because if there is an area in which we need migration, it's for the lower skilled areas. It's for the cleaners. It's the plumbers. It's all the jobs. And not that plumbing is low skilled actually, but we have a dearth of that kind of thing. And I don't know if they would put that as a, as a higher skilled. Um, type of job and I just find it quite interesting that they kind of play into these sort of prejudices that people may have where people think yeah well that's what we want we want high skilled people we don't want these lower skilled migrants and we definitely do and need them 
particularly in agriculture, which if we do end up leaving the EU and we probably are going to need to have more of a focus on our own agriculture and production within the UK, where are all the people who are going to work in that industry? So pretty much the whole of Cambridgeshire and the entire agriculture community there really is predominantly Eastern European and it's work that British people just won't do in reality. So if we do end up with a um, conservative Brexit scenario, one of the things that I I have seen is, and, and we have seen in the past with the Tories, is that they've managed to win, they managed to win elections based on appealing to a broad base when it comes to immigration, which not many people want to often talk about. We're actually seeing a kind of comeback from Tories saying, oh, well, you know what, if we're in control of our immigration and control of our borders, we can actually bring in more people from former colonies in a, in, in a, in a way to kind of assuage fears and concerns that, oh, you know, we're going to only allow our, you know, the, the skilled workers to come in. We're not going to allow people who or enable people who come from, you know, the colonies or come former colonies or come from countries in Africa or countries or developing countries and we're not going to allow them to come in. So I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how they swing it. And also the fact is that, like you've said, the jobs aren't going to just disappear. In fact, the jobs in certain industries are going to grow. You're not going You're not going to get the native, the, the native British who have voted um, for Brexit because they want control of their borders to do those jobs. So... I suspect that this target of keeping immigration below 100,000, and you've actually kind of seen and noticed in kind of a lot of politicians and that, politicians' descriptions and politicians' interviews that they're kind of starting to kind of downplay that less than 100,000 target, um, which to me kind of smacks of post-election, we're going to basically just work with what we've got. And if we need more, we're going to we're going to quietly keep the doors open. I mean, 100,000 seems really low for given the population of the UK and all the industries that do need immigrants filling in the the vacancies. Um, It just doesn't seem workable. I think what's also interesting is that they haven't necessarily steered clear away from setting these kind of targets for themselves. We've seen how badly it's played out for them in the past when they said they were going to bring it down to tens of thousands and they haven't done that. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, post-Brexit that they do end up bringing it to 100,000. But just on your point, Re, the um, Australian-style immigration system, I think one of the things that we don't necessarily talk about a lot, or maybe we do and, you know, mainstream media ignores it, but it's the fact that our immigration system at the moment and the policies it's heavily racialized. So actually, when it comes to that immigration style policy, we are going to be seeing those, you know, nurses, doctors and lawyers, but we'll be seeing them coming from Australia because Uncle Ade from Nigeria, who studied medicine, will come the University here. University of Ife. Yeah. <laughs> will come to the UK. Which is a great university. My mum went there. You know, yeah. you know, they've worked hard. They've gotten the, the tops of their grades in, in, you know, in their field at university or maybe they've even gone to work as a doctor in Nigeria or whatever. And then they come here and it's like, oh, well, you can only be, you know, you can only have a lower skilled job because we don't recognise your qualification. We're going to see so much more of that. It's already happening, but it's going to that's going to if they're allowed in first of all yeah. um, but it's just going to multiply um, also the other interesting thing mm. to note is that particularly with some of our trade deals and I'm thinking India is a big example one of the prices of of a, of a good trade deal is going to be the Indians going to ask for visas well, they have. Yeah. and they already they have, have. They've, 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 have. They've, the battle line's already been which drawn is, which is I think a fair enough demand for them of to course. make yeah, yeah and, and that's just going to happen more and more and I, I do find that really interesting like you said Zainab what I also find interesting we'll move on to this when we do the health episode 
is that they have made massive promises in terms of the number of nurses, doctors and so on that they're going to bring across. Mm. And that is dependent on immigration. Mm. And they need to bear in mind that those people will have families yeah. who will need to come yeah, over. Absolutely. And so, you know, they if they're committing to 20,000 more doctors mm. and each of those doctors has a partner and a couple of children, you're way past the 100,000 yeah. target already. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just unrealistic. You mentioned a criticism that you had of one of the Lib Dem policies, mm. um, which was the increased use of border, con- well, border officers. Um, but interestingly, you were for the fact that they would be combating human trafficking. Mm. Now, the way that I read that policy is that the way they are going to combat human trafficking mm. is through that yeah. increase in offices and the training yeah. and technology. I have to actually say, um, what I see in there is that they haven't said increase. They've said they're going to invest in offices, True. training and technology. And I have to say that I think overall it's a positive and if you have to look at which party is the party that's going to be training those officers you have to look at which party is going to be training those officers if you have a party who in the same vein is saying that they are going to have uh, more dignity provided to that's refugees and asylum seekers saying that they are going to train officers and make sure that those officers are tuned to issues such as human trafficking mm. overall actually i think it paints a positive picture that's a good point and yeah. i think a lot I of the that. issues that we have at the moment with the way in which detainees immigrants who are detained in, in centers like that are treated is because of a lack of training and an under-resourcing in offices and that if they actually went back and if they had it drummed into them these are vulnerable people who even if we send them uh, back to the country that they have come from it doesn't mean that they are criminals doesn't mean that they're terrible people it just means that they haven't met the requirements you treat them with dignity and and I I think actually overall I found that quite positive yeah that's a good point it's a smart policy um particularly at the moment with what's happened with the um the Vietnamese immigrants who died Mm. in the van Um, and so actually in terms of policies that that the public can really be sympathetic to and get behind it's up there do we think though sorry my turn to throw out a question that the UK public are ready for that or do we think that they're ready for us to say or have a party that's like we're going to invest more to ensure that immigrants and illegal illegal immigrants are treated with more dignity and you know we're not going to immediately criminalize them we're not going to send them back but we're going to actually make them go through due process First and all of that I sort just of say, stuff I hate the term illegal, illegal immigrants. immigrants so do I, I that's to why I did say that. that I think the Americanism is much better of, of an undocumented migrant right but and so yes yeah, so that's you yeah. know that's, a phrase that I would I prefer yeah, to use okay. and um, I think that when you look at the sympathy that went out to the victims of that trafficking you beat incident, me to it I was just about to yeah, say yeah I think that actually one of the things that I think the British people do very well is once they understand that there is an underdog that needs protecting then they step into action and I think that what has happened over the years it's become really normalized to treat immigrants as though they are the worst type of criminal or just the lowest of the low and if actually people recognize read these manifestos understand that we're dealing with vulnerable people who are risking their lives in in some cases to come to this country and that what these policies are moving towards is making sure that that's doesn't happen um then yeah i think that there isn't an, an i think there would be a public interest in in that kind of thing and also i think you've got changed. to realize that politicians for the last two or three decades have actually or actually more you can go back to you know enoch powell's rivers of blood speech um have used immigration as a suitable 
political political football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which, which which has which has you know desensitized the public and in some ways without saying that oh yeah it's a good thing that the vietnam vietnam immigrant disaster happened was a good thing but actually it takes sometimes things like that to actually awaken the public's consciousness to realize actually no this is a real big issue and actually if people can die trying to come here then maybe we do need to do something maybe we do need to figure out a solution that is actually going to work for everyone including those who are trying to make their way here for whatever reason it is and that it's an issue that is not going to go away whether we go through with Brexit, whether we don't um, leave the EU, this problem will not go away. We are always going to have people risking their lives to come to the UK in, rea- in, the re- in reality. And we have to find a better way of dealing with um, the people who do come over and who it's are so vulnerable. It's the relic of our empire. It's, got, it's actually not connected really to our relationship with the EU. It's a vestige of the fact that we actively went to a whole Every bunch of other of countries and told them that Britain was <laughs> yeah. amazing and so they yeah. want to come here. Um, okay, let's finish, okay. if we can, Zainab, with yeah, you. Sure. Obviously, you have told our listeners that you are a Labour Party member and on top of that, actually, that you have worked for a Labour MP. Yes. So I'm going to ask you now, can oh, you gosh. tell me what you think the Labour manifesto falls short on in relation Ooh. to immigration? Testing you here. Come on, girl. Because I know that you think the Lib Dems have the best immigration policy in terms of I mean, did I say that? You did say that. Ooh. I'm going to put you on record as saying no, that. No, please don't. So, it's on the podcast now. I um, can't take it back. The thing is, honestly speaking, I do think that, you know, Labour is the kind of anti-racist, anti-fascist um, party who have a, a long history in kind of... Well, actually, can I say they have a long history? But well, they they have a dedication to really fighting for the underdog. And at the moment, the underdog in our society are immigrants, right? Whether you are an asylum seeker or you're an an undocumented um, migrant, you know, these are the people that are really facing the worst of our policies. They're being charged extortionate fees to you know, to become citizens. Um, They are being detained in awful, awful, awful conditions where their mental health is, um, you know, deteriorating. Um, So yeah, honestly, I think, okay, being realistic, I think the Lib Dem policy, they have some good things. And actually, if you merge some of their policies with Labour, that would be the ideal. Would I say that they are completely the best? No, I would still say Labour has it. Um, But, (laughs) you know, I, I would say Labour has it. I don't know if there's anything in there that I would question necessarily with Labour but the other thing that I would want to shout out for really quickly for for both of the manifestos from Labour and Lib Dem is the extending the right to vote for 16 to 17 year olds I'm a fan of that I think it's working with young people at that age at at those ages they are incredibly literate they can tell you what they're angry about they can tell you what they're for and a lot of the policies especially when it comes to Brexit um, you know really affects them and how they will grow up in this world Um, and so they have a right to speak and to vote and so I think that we should let them. Agreed. If I could say, because I'm also a Labour Party member, um, I was disappointed with what Labour had in their um, migration section of the of their manifesto. And the reason that I was disappointed is that I felt that it was very critical about what the Conservatives have done. And it was, I, did, I didn't think that there were enough positive action points in the manifesto. I didn't, I think it lacked the detail that the Lib Dem manifesto had within it. So Similar to you, I think if the principles behind what was in the Labour manifesto were merged with the action points yeah. that we see in the Lib Dem manifesto, that could have made a, a brilliant kind of um, a document. But in terms of, of choosing between the two, I think actually Lib Dem's pip 
labor on on this one it's not enough to say what's bad about the Tories you have to actually say what what we would do and how we would do it exactly maybe they ran out of pages it was like 107 pages pages (laughs) and only and only a page and a half on migration okay I will take it back and let them know to be fair it's similar with justice of what we were saying that labor and Lib Dem very similar both have good policies but Lib Dem have the detail and the practicality about how they're going to carry it out they are specific aren't they yeah they are they are quite specific okay so if we move on to the second half of our podcast where we're going to deal with areas of the manifestos that cross into the criminal justice system okay so fiona do you want to break down for us what the conservative manifesto says about stop and search the tories want to increase the use of stop and search Mm -hmm. um so long as quote it's fair and proportionate lib dems want to end the disproportionate use of stop and search so do labor and Greens want to restrict the use of stop and search. In terms of knife policies and knife crimes and where this sort of fits in, particularly with the Tories, is that the Tories want a new court order which will empower police to target known crime, uh, known knife carriers, making it easier for officers to stop and search those who have been convicted of knife crimes. They want to expedite first appearances for knife cases within days, not weeks. Um, And they want those who use a knife as a weapon to go to prison. So in terms of the use of stop and search, the the idea of having enhanced powers to stop someone um, who is has had a conviction for carrying a knife is something for me that's pretty worrying because it goes against any prospect of rehabilitation of people being allowed to make a mistake and then leave it in their past. It will inevitably be disproportionately used against young males, particularly from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, And all it's really going to create a risk of is alienating those groups uh, and making them less likely to engage with police or community-based officers at a time that really that's most needed in order to try and address the knife crime epidemic. I mean, also, one of the things that I found quite concerning in the way it's portrayed is I don't think it is... I think it, I think it's almost misleading in terms of what powers the police already have yeah. and the way in which the criminal justice system already works. So if we break this down, they're saying they want to make it easier for officers to stop and search those convicted of knife crime. At the moment, if an officer has a reason, a, a reasonable justification to stop somebody they can stop somebody. And so what this, if they are, if, if we follow through what they're saying, it's almost like they're either saying they're going to lower the bar and basically if they come across somebody who's been convicted of knife crime, they can stop and search them. Or they are simply repeating something that's already in place, but making it seem as though that protection is not already there. And I, I, I I've understood bit, it to be the first one, that essentially if yeah. they see someone that they know has a conviction for um, carrying a knife, then they can automatically stop and search them. Uh, And the reality is, based on neighbourhood policing and police numbers, that's only going to be officers who have some experience in terms of the gangs matrix. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be sort of your your random person on the street who happens to have a conviction for knife crime because they're not going to be known to officers. And that's where the disproportionality is going to come into play. So for anyone who's not aware of what the gangs matrix is, it's a mechanism which is used by the police basically to consolidate intelligence they have about people. 
And it's a really concerning tool that is used by the police. It's been heavily criticised across all the parties. So this isn't a party-specific um, criticism. Um, one of the reasons that it's criticised is, for example, uh, using examples that you've probably had with clients, I've had with clients. I've had clients who are of good character. So they have no cautions, reprimands, warnings, convictions recorded against them, but they are on the gang's matrix. And the reason they're on the gang's matrix is because they have been a victim of knife crime. So if you have been stabbed and then for whatever reason you don't report it or you're viewed as being somebody who has not been particularly cooperative with the police, a police officer can be suspicious about your behaviour and they can put your name on the gang's matrix. So you go from being a victim of knife crime to somebody who is on the gang's matrix, who's now on the spectrum of the police. And you know this is, this, this is the kind of information that is being built behind the scenes about people. And there's a disproportionate number of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds who feature on things like the gang's matrix. So question, do, um, are there people on the gang's matrix who are um, there by virtue of association as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the wow. reality is they probably won't ever know that they're on the gang's matrix until they come into contact contact again with police. So either they're being disproportionately stopped and searched or, for example, they end up in court for something unrelated and suddenly you have a 50-page witness statement mm -hmm. from a police officer seeking a criminal behaviour order, which is sort of the modern equivalent of an ASBO, all about how they're, uh, in quotes, a gang member. Um, and even and they're bringing in potentially knife crime prevention orders, which exactly. is just another form of these types of orders. And you know what? what is bizarre is the more you are stopped and searched, even if those stop and searches don't amount to anything, the bigger the level of intelligence, the, the increased level of intelligence the police have about you. So the more suspicious they view you as being. So I've had applications being made by the police and the prosecution for previously ASBOs, now criminal behaviour orders, potentially in the future knife crime prevention orders, based merely on the fact that somebody has repeatedly been stopped and searched. And they'll put in things into those statements so it gives you an idea of what's on the gang's matrix because it makes its way to these statements. They'll put in things like associated with XYZ. You ask your client how they're associated with that person. They were at school with them. It's their cousin. It's their neighbour. Like it's their yeah. bigger brother. You know, it's, it's things like that. So just by living in certain areas where you are more likely to come across people who have these convictions, more likely to come across people who have these affiliations, you are a step closer to being viewed as a quasi-criminal. And there's also the troll of social media, that they, they will go through social media accounts and look for anything that can be interpreted mm. as gang-related. And most of the time, it's just young people and, and how they pose and how they behave. It's not gang-related in the, in the strict sense. It was very funny to see the um, the um, drill, the police, the, I can't remember yeah, what it was. The drill music. Drill music. Yeah. Where, I think it was it Cressida, Cressida Dick. I can't remember who it was that basically came out on news making saying, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're pulling videos from YouTube because they're making drill music, which is directly attributable to violence. Um, I can't remember what happened, but essentially it's kind of like a similar thing. Where oh yeah, we oh, see yeah. those in cases. Yeah. Oh, right. I, oh yeah, like we have cases where, um, where a client is asserted to be a gang member or a gang associate because they're in the background or even in the foreground of a drill music video. And that is brought in as potential bad character evidence or, or, you know, evidence to show gang affiliation. So all of these things, the way that things are moving, you know, that's why I think most 
practitioners in the criminal justice system, whether they prosecute or defend, have concerns about this creeping effect of using things like stop and search, if the basis on which you're spreading those those powers of stop and search are things as tenuous mm. as... Um, Being know, in a drill of music video and saying, bruh. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or like you say, like just having a brother or cousin or somebody who has those sorts of affiliations. So yeah, I agree. I found, I found it concerning that actually the movement in the, con- in the Conservative manifesto was towards increasing the use of stop and search. It, it kind of echoes, and that maybe brings us on to um, attitudes towards youths generally and within that knife crime, because the, all three parties want to try and address um, youth violence and youth crime by some sort of violence reduction unit. Um, but the Tories have a kind of contradictory policy because on the one hand, what they say is um, that they want to invest 500 million in youth services for young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the, under, over the last 10 years under the Tory government, youth services have been cut by 69%. So all they're doing is trying to put back what they've already cut, which is what's led to this youth, youth crime epidemic. Yeah. And what they also want to do is place young people into alternative provision schools or, or trial secure schools. And they're looking at increasing school exclusions. And there's such a high correlation between school excuse, exclusions and young people ending up in the criminal justice system. And who do you see being excluded more than anybody else in the young educational system? Males. Exactly. Whereas... Um, Probably the best or the most understandable um, and clearest outline in the manifesto comes from the Lib Dems, who want to invest in youth services to help tackle youth violence and knife crime. And they're advocating a public health approach, um, which identifies risk factors and treats them rather than just focusing on the symptoms. So it involves police, teachers, health professionals, youth workers, social services all working together to try and stop people getting into gangs in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is once you're in a gang, it's really hard to get a young person out of a gang. But if you can stop them ever getting involved, then you're already, um, you've won most of the battle. And that is reflective of what's kind of happening on the ground in terms of the criminal criminal justice system. I think as practitioners, we are often exposed to people who have very tragic stories about why they've become involved in a lot of these things. And it's quite sadly predictable, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. In terms of the people who will come before you. And I see the way that the probation services are really pushing to try to divert um, these kinds of things away from escalating to uh, criminal offences. I see the way that judges are becoming quite, I think, uh, distraught seeing the same people coming before them over and over again. And if there was a way to look at things in context and to deal with the context that leads to to these kinds of things, that would be a much more effective approach, as we have seen in Glasgow. I was was literally just about to reference Glasgow and ask um, if you have any kind of like detailed breakdown of how the VIU... I've got some stats for you. VIU. Yeah, <laughs> nice. It's the because VIU. it was Glasgow. I was so interested. Uh, so how the VIU in Glasgow did reverse the tide. Yeah. So basically yeah. in 2005, Scotland was deemed to be the most violent country in the developed world and Glasgow had the highest murder uh, rate. And essentially, they set up, Strathclyde Police set up a violence reduction unit, which adopted this public health approach to knife crime. So from 2006 to 2011, the first five years that it was in operation, they had 15 youths killed with knives in Glasgow. 2011 to 2016, want to take a guess how many? I'd say 10. 
they had not a single youth killed with a knife. Oh, wow. In a five-year period, which is just incredible. And the number of people carrying knives has declined. And what they did was they managed to tackle gang culture by targeting the leaders and trying to isolate them from their followers. And we're seeing that a little bit here. You've got charities like Red Thread uh, Youth that are going into accident and emergency departments, particularly, mm. I think it's Kings and Camberwell. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to operate this youth intervention um, program. But it's a charity. They they are limited in what they can do. It needs support from the state. What and obviously we don't, funding has gone down. Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. What we don't need is this attitude that, that we're getting in some of the manifestos of actually, if we've got problem kids, let's put them into secure schools, let's exclude them from mainstream education, because all that's going to do is make the the, sister, the um, problem even worse. And in terms of the Labour manifesto, um, they do also highlight, don't they, funding youth clubs, youth centres, funding that aspect of things. So although it's not as uh, clearly set out as being part of this kind of um, health public health issue, there are there is at least that sort of balance of... We see that stop and search is an issue. It's breaking down the relationship. So they say, let's increase community policing and also invest in these youth services. I would have hoped, I would have wanted to have seen in the Conservative manifesto, if they're going to take such a hard line and actually say they want to increase the use of of stop and search, I would think that needs to be balanced by saying that's because we're also going to increase the use of these intervention um, type policies at the other end so that we can be more reassured that people who may fall within the remits of stop and search have had those opportunities provided to them and it's come to this. Yeah, exactly. The The Labour manifesto also is the only one really to refer to the use of youth custody. Um, Feltham is just not fit for purpose anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's, there's been increasing reports about that. And they also want to strengthen youth courts and build on the Lamy review. And on courts generally, Labour is the only one, the only party to address the court closures and recognise the harm that that's causing to the justice system. And in the context of youth courts, um, it, particularly in London, we've lost a large number of youth courts. And the problem is, particularly in the context of gangs, you then have young people crossing rival gang territory in order to make court dates where they're then sat in a court building uh-huh. with rival gang members. And then everyone's suddenly shocked when things kick off. Um, Can and, I, sorry to sorry, talk across you. You know what I find really interesting as well, I found really interesting, was that um, the Labour manifesto specifically refers to the Lamy Review. Now, obviously, David Lamy is a, is a Labour MP, but do you know who commissioned the Lamy Review? It was the Tories. It David was David Cameron. Cameron. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a real missed opportunity, actually, by the Conservatives, yeah. because that would have been, a, in terms of like grabbing voters, it would have been fantastic to see them say that this is an area which is far more important than partisan politics. We've already shown that we want to cooperate with a party that we are the natural kind of seen as the natural opponents of we cross parties we cross parties with them to get this review and now it is our opportunity to say that we're going to put those policies into place and instead they've gone against much of what he recommended in the review part of this cynic in me understands um policing and crime and the tories historic approach to it in the context of them appealing to their base which is we're going to be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Mm. And the electioneering that comes out every election cycle is what convinces them that they're safer under the Tory, a Tory government. Yeah. And yeah. it means that they don't have to pay as much attention to the structural issues which underpin crime and policing. Yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate, but 
I think that's a reality of Tory policy. It is, yeah. And in some and in many ways, I think, without trying to be too controversial here, it's even more so telling that you've got the lead advocate, i.e. the prospective home secretary, or incumbent home secretary and prospective home secretary being an ethnic minority um, person who is at the forefront of this even more strident and stringent yeah. policy. So that's quite interesting. But also someone who fundamentally doesn't understand the justice system, which and, is well, yeah. concerning. Dare I say it, some could say that a focus on harsher punishment, especially for those who carry knives, mm-hmm. uh, could deter many young people and individuals who do carry knives. But we know it doesn't work. Look, mm. you've got someone like Jay Huss being sent to prison. Yeah. Um, a lot of young people will know who he is. Yeah. Has that deterred young people from carrying knives? Yeah. Absolutely nope. not. Yeah. And the reality is the Tory, in the Tory manifesto, they say that those who use knives as weapons should essentially automatically receive a prison sentence. Yeah. The sentencing guidelines already provide for that as an aggravating feature. If you use a knife as a weapon, you're going to prison. You are going to prison. You're, yeah, you're, you're going to prison. It's, it's that and that's what goes back to what we were saying before. I think it's really interesting, and it's not something that just the Conservatives do, the others do this as well. But when somebody says in a manifesto, those who do this should go to this, it makes you think that that's not already happening. Mm. But the reality is that that already happens. There is just no way that if you took a knife out and you used it as a weapon, that you're, that anything is happening to you except uh, And even not taking it out, there's mandatory prison yeah. sentences for second offence of carrying a knife, yeah, which yeah, is what six months automatically. It, it sort of brings us actually maybe neatly into sentencing, sentencing because um, <laughs> the Conservatives are the only party advocating an increase in the use of prison Mm -hmm. so they want to add 10,000 more prison uh, prison places they want to tougher sentencing for the worst offenders and end automatic halfway release from prison for serious crimes and who has the largest prison population in Europe it would be us we have the largest uh, prison population there's no real sense of where these 10,000 prison places are going to be be coming from there's no definition of what worst offenders are or what serious crimes are. Um, Whereas in contrast, Labour and Lib Dem want to abolish the presumption of prison sentences of, um, excuse me, they want a presumption against prison sentences of six months or less. Because, Um, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, go ahead. One of the reasons, yeah, because they don't work. And if we break down just why those don't work, if you receive a sentence of six months or less, you would serve three months of that sentence. Let's think about what happens in that period. So you're renting a house. You're you're very unlikely to be a homeowner if you're committing petty crimes that attract sentences like that. So say you are somebody who is the breadwinner of that household. Three months is just about long enough for you to lose the tenancy on that house. So you come out with unstable accommodation, even if you had it before you went in. And having lost whatever job you had. Exactly. Debt that would have accrued because you've probably got some bills which have gone unpaid in, in that period as well. And so, and you're unemployable. Let's be frank, you've got a criminal conviction now and you have gone to prison. So what are you going to do? And if you're on benefits, by then they also will have been stopped because and there's you've delays. not been going exactly. in. And there's and delays so trying to get it restarted yeah, exactly. again. Yeah, universal, yeah, five weeks before, yeah. 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 And if you, if you have any sort of mental health issue or general health issue or drug issue that you're receiving treatment for, that then gets disrupted as well. So all that short sentences do is basically break down whatever, however minor, but whatever support system that you have in place that might stop you reoffending in future, it will be gone. And you're going to go in, you're going to serve a matter of weeks and then be back out again. And in reality, that's why 
conviction rates are so high for those who serve short sentences, and mm-hmm. they disproportionately affect women as well. So when you say conviction rates, do you mean reoffense rate, reoffending, reoffending, rates? and and then yeah. subsequently and being convicted? Conviction. And again, actually, this is something that the Tories initially raised because um, David Gawke, when he was uh, Justice Secretary, all the way, <laughs> he wanted to abolish prison sentences of six months or less, um, and partly it was to try and ease the prison crisis, the same prison yes. crisis that the Tories want to shove another 10,000 prisoners yeah. into, but also rec- recognising, and here's some stats for you, that in the last five years, two, there were 250,000 sentences of six months or less. And of those offenders, two thirds went on to commit another crime within a year of release. Wow. So recidivism is so high. The other um large area that's come up so I think we can deal with them sort of in in one go is the parole system yeah and also policing and in terms of the numbers of, of policing so whereas the conservatives have emphasized this increased uh, number of prison places as we've said Lib Dem and Labour have really pushed forward this idea of trying to divert people away from prisons and increasing the kind of uh, intensiveness of community support or community punishment programs um but a key area that we also have in terms of how you rehabilitate prisoners and how you make sure that before they are released that they are fit to be released is the use of the parole system and i think we would agree that there are concerns around the parole system um and especially in light of events that happened on the 29th of november um namely the further london bridge attack that we have had One of the concerns has been that the fact that the perpetrator of that attack had a previous conviction for a terrorism-related offence, that he had been released from prison automatically at the halfway point of serving his sentence. And just to give you guys the background of that, he initially received a an indeterminate sentence. And that is basically a sentence that says that you can only be, you have to serve a minimum sentence in custody. And then only after a parole board has confirmed that you are fit to be released, can you be released. That was appealed and the appeal was won and it was replaced with an extended sentence instead. So still a tougher sentence than you would normally receive for these, for a general a criminal matter. But What the judge uh, who uh, granted the appeal had understood was that with an extended sentence, you would still need to be seen by the parole board before being released. And instead, what happened because of really a lacuna in the law was that he was released at the half time point. So it was never foreseen by any sentencing judge or any barrister or anyone else who had worked on those cases that he would be released without the review of the parole board. And yet he was. And I think a concern that I have about that and something that I think Fiona and I have both seen uh, in recent years in terms of our practices is that you see a lot of legislation which is coming through. And it's quite obvious that the people who have worded the legislation, considered it and put it through, may not have the practical knowledge of how it actually works in the system. And they haven't spotted these areas, these lacunas which have arisen. And I think also the reality of um, what services there are available in prison. One of the reasons that Mm. imprisonment for public protection or IPPs um, were abolished was that 
you had people going into prison on relatively minor offences and essentially never getting released because in order to be rehabilitated, the programmes either didn't exist or were oversubscribed or were inadequate. Well, you were moving around prison so much, different locations, that you went back to the bottom of the list. And by the time you got to the top of the list for the course, you moved to another prison again. So, And so all of the parties do talk about improving rehabilitative services in prison, but there's no actual detail on how they're going to achieve that. And there's not even any examination of the type of companies. So, for instance, Timpsons, who do the key cutting, the shoes, mm-hmm. they I think it might be exclusively higher ex-offenders, yep. or yeah. certainly they focus on. There's no sort of reference to companies like that or using that approach. They just say, oh, well, we want to make prison services better. We want more effective rehabilitation, with no real idea of how to, how to achieve that, um, particularly within the prison system that is already crumbling. Yeah, so I think that's actually a, a criticism that we can make of each of the manifestos, yeah. to be honest. That's not specific to one particular party. So, But do you think that that's partly because of the fact that clearly, you know, throughout the last few years, funding has been an issue yeah. um, across all prison ref- and across all elements of prison reform. Yeah. And of course, in the context of this election, a lot of, well, a lot of the parties, including the main three who are doing most of our analysis on are promising swathes and swathes of money, but... Where's it going to come from? Where's it going to come from, number one? Number two, the analysis on how that money's actually going to be spent hasn't necessarily been done and it's quite clear and quite evident across all three manifestos. Do you know what? Let's just be frank. One of the reasons why they haven't gone into detail about these points, and I I think, is that these are long-term policies, long-term goals. And to be frank, it's going to take more than one parliament for those to happen. And you don't win an election by making promises about things that you can't achieve within the five-year period. Mm -hmm. And so this is these are long-term goals. They would require the parties to work together and come together and to make promises that these are things that will continue to be maintained no matter who is in government. And it's an area where I'm actually quite, I'm disappointed by all three Mm -hmm. in that respect of not talking about cross-party discussions um, about those areas. I think the last thing that we wanted to discuss on this area was legal aid. Yeah, only Labour have addressed um, in their manifesto. So Labour want to essentially try and reverse the cuts to legal aid. Um, they want to restore all early legal aid, aid advice and ensure legal aid for inquests into deaths in state custody and the preparation of judicial review cases. They're also going to consult on the civil legal aid means test levels and act on the criminal legal aid review. Um, we don't have enough time in this podcast to go into <laughs> quite how badly legal aid has been cut over the last few years. And it's not just for crime. It's, it, it's you know, legal aid affects things like family law, housing, judicial immigration, reviews, judicial well, reviews. Yeah. Barristers. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, you know, it affects barristers and, and their pay. <laughs> but in many ways, actually, I think a lot of the concerns that barristers have around legal Legal aid would be met by even if you ignored us and ignored our fees, yeah. which we, you know we hope that people don't. But even if, if people did that and they concentrated on restoring legal aid in in terms of what you provide to people who need representation, the system would run a lot more smoothly. Yeah. And in terms of the burden that even barristers and the system itself then has, that would be eased and it would make work feel better remunerated in any event. But Yes, Labour is the only party that speaks about legal aid in their manifesto. It's not specifically addressed in either of the other two. I think to give sort of a practical example of the impact that the legal aid aid, um, 
cuts have had is if you imagine that you are someone who's been arrested for a criminal offence, um, you're earning, say, £30,000, which within London is, is reasonably standard. Um, and you either are not going to qualify for legal aid because you earn too much, or you're going to qualify, but with such high contributions that effectively you cannot afford you're basically to make them. basically yourself. Yeah. And you and don't get the contributions back. Yeah. So if you write, if you are innocent and you rightly defend that case, um, and at the end of it all, whether you've um, paid privately or you've made contributions, and at the end of it all, you're found not guilty, or even the prosecution drops the case against you, you will not get back what you have spent. And contributions can be quite high; they can be around five hundred pounds, six hundred pounds a yeah. month. So as much as some people's rent. In, in some cases. I had, I had a client who was uh, on a matter and his, his contributions were £1,200 a month. He had four kids. There was no way he could pay those contributions. Right. Of course. So what happened to him? Uh, there were a lot of appeals to the legal aid agency. And in the end, again, he was he was acquitted. He did not get his contributions back, but they did cut his contributions down to £600. And the reason that this actually came to the forefront was because of the, I forget his name, I'm sure I will probably know because he retains names like, like this. The MP who was criminally prosecuted... Yeah. And he was surprised to learn that he wasn't going to get his um, his money back. He paid privately, uh, obviously, not he didn't qualify for legal aid, but he was surprised to learn that he wouldn't get his money back. Which one? <laughs> we'll Which one? But of course, we'll no one out. cares okay. until it affects them. Yeah. And then suddenly everyone's outraged. And that's another, that's another key point about legal aid is that, again, it is not particularly, it's not, it's not a voting area as such, which is why I think the two of the parties are quiet about it, because most people don't consider that legal aid will affect them until it actually does. And even when it does, as a percentage of the of the population it's, it's so relatively small. exactly it's so you're not going to die on your uh on that particular um <laughs> i can't remember the rest <laughs> that's it thank you <laughs> die on that hill. but also no one thinks about the converse position of if you're for example a victim of crime and you end up against someone who has to self-represent because they don't have um legal aid and that you might be cross-examined by the person that you say has mugged you i'd rather be cross examined by a barrister than a lay person <laughs> yeah. for sure so thank you for listening to our first episode on The Manifesto Read. And as always, please make sure that you follow us on Instagram and Twitter, which you can find by just searching The Manifesto Read and subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us. We need the likes. Like us. <laughs>